Welcome to season two of Navigating the Pandemic. I'm your host, Kat Morgan, and I'm a Master of Public Health candidate at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. In our last episode, we explored COVID-19 epidemiological research and how to assess the long-term socio-medical effects of COVID with Dr. Matthew Lamb, an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Columbia University Medical Center. Today, I'm excited to share a group interview featuring young professionals in public health. We will hear from two recent graduates of the Columbia University Millman School of Public Health, Rachel Sadoff and Eli Binder. Uh, Rachel Sadoff specializes in global health policy and focuses on international relations, One Health, which is a concept we'll touch on later on in the interview, addressing health disparities among vulnerable populations, and of course, the future of pandemic control. Eli's expertise lies in epidemiology, specifically disease surveillance, monitoring burden, data collection ethics, and the prospects of returning to normalcy. So without further ado, let's dive into episode one of our two-part mini-series, Young Professionals in Public Health. I'm so excited to have these wonderful guests today for my first multi-interviewee Navigating the Pandemic show. If you guys would just take a moment to introduce yourselves and share your names, your pronouns, uh, what you're studying, and a little bit of your background. Cool. So uh, I'm Eli Binder. I'm a, a second year student here at Mailman in the epidemiology department. Uh, I use he, him pronouns, and uh, I'm also in the global health certificate. So uh, what that involves is we do some global, I guess, global health things. Uh, so we we look more outside the U.S., um, mainly at low- and middle-income countries. From July through December of 2022, I was in south-central Uganda doing some uh, HIV-related data analysis. And yeah, so that's that's really where my interest is in, but also, you know, living through a global pandemic has, has um, on obviously uh, shed light on other things. Oh, yeah. That way, yeah. Uh, I'm Rachel. My pronouns are they, them. I'm also in the global health department in my second year at Mailman, uh, but my department is health policy and management. So compared to Epi, I'll take much more of a anthropological, political, international relations-based approach uh, to infectious disease control and prevention. Uh, my background is a childhood in five countries, so I grew up surrounded by global health disparities that were very moving to me. I studied history and literature in college and found that many of the society changing trends, you know, real pivotal points in human history related to health. And so from there, uh, I've held 13 internships. Uh, I've published uh, more than 10 really cranky op-eds about uh, global health uh, (laughs) politics and policy. And uh, in the long term, I hope to help improve global health, you know, policy, security and governance at a global level but of course informed by uh, the experiences of the pandemic and data from epidemiologists like Eli. Yeah, I, I just sit in a room, a dark room with like, I don't like publish like 20 things, all these think tanks and all that crazy stuff. No, no, no. No, but you need the best of both worlds to tackle wicked problems like this and systems thinking. That's what we love about public health. It's so multidisciplinary and everybody has has their strengths that we weave together in different ways. Um, as listeners, you already know my background, so I'm not going to dive too much into that, but 
I am getting my Master of Public Health and Environmental Health Sciences with a certificate in food systems. Obviously, um, to my loyal listeners, I've been hosting this podcast since November of 2020. I spent about six months last year working for the Pandemic Action Network, where I authored some blog content for them um, about youth leadership and the COVID-19 response. And yeah, have really enjoyed hosting this podcast and I'm thrilled to have this fun peer session today. So yeah, let's let's dive in. I know you guys prepared some really interesting discussion topics that I'm excited to dive into. Can jump in. I know Eli, you have some fun discussion topics. Yeah, sure, first. Sure. Nobody gets left out here. <laughs> Nobody gets left out. Um, and yeah, we can just kind of organically roll with it. Oh, sounds great. Uh, a complicated enough topic that wandering may actually be the best best way to uh, tackle. Oh yeah, seriously. <laughs> Well, given my uh, background and professional interests, I will say I viewed COVID-19 as kind of a challenge to global health governance systems. Mm -hmm. We've seen the world kind of come together since the early 2000s with Gavi and the Global Fund, trying to figure out ways to distribute money in a way that improves, you know, self-sufficiency in receiving and implementing countries um and is as equitable and kind of decolonizing in spirit as possible. And I'd be happy to jump into that as well. Um, and it's been really interesting to see how different diplomatic relations have been tested um, and manifest in real um, deaths. I mean, supply chain blockages, the refusal of service, um, donating versus selling PPE has really um, contributed to some tensions. I can say, for example, you know, when Italy donated a lot of PPE to China in its early outbreak, it was later sold back is the uh, allegation. And so some uh, countries will have, you know, reported on each other. I was seeing um, a neighboring country to Nicaragua complain to the WHO that because their neighbor was being irresponsible, someone should step in. Yeah. And so all these questions of collective responsibility and fundraising and who you give that money to. Um, um, given the nature of our globalized world, these things are going to keep spreading. And unlike tropical, you know, neglected tropical diseases that well, because of climate change, we might see those start to affect people in the United States. But, you know, historically, it's easy to turn a blind eye when something isn't directly at your doorstep. And I think the globalization of COVID-19 is one of the first times where some of these high income countries have have had to like pause for a second and realize, oh, this is what happens if I don't start you know, like uh, funding vaccine dissemination projects. And there's you probably talk speak more to this but all of the inequities kind of tied to yeah. access and supply chain absolutely um and i'm thinking in exactly the spirit of ignoring your low-income neighbor dying of something you're not concerned about i think COVID is the first time at least americans have really had to look around and say investing in foreign health is an investment in your health yeah not for not charity you know if we vaccinate the african continent americans are safer and uh, I think some people have really shifted their, uh, you know, missions and strategies to adapt to that. But I don't think it has, that message has resonated for enough people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely within the health community, I feel like that message has already been in existence. You know, you, you look at, I mean, just recently, like, what was it? It was only like, you know, 60 years ago, we had our last case of smallpox, you know, and mm -hmm. like polio. You know, you, you really you look at these diseases and you think, yeah, we want to protect the whole world because it yeah it does come back to protecting us 
maybe an anthropological lens can sort of be taken on to think about the cultural ethos of the United States and sort of this individualistic society. And this actually ties in really well to to anti-vaxxers and the spread of disease and those sort of ideologies where, oh, it's not directly affecting me or I'm not, I'm not even worried about my neighbor. They're not my problem. My personal liberties and safety is of utmost importance. And I think that I would assume probably ties in a lot with global health and aid and ignoring your neighbor's needs, you know? Absolutely. Um, and it's hard sometimes to figure out what those needs are. Um, you know, given how fragmented the global response has been, we really needed to kind of tailor our strategies. And with that, we need good data. So I probably want to hand over to Eli. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we were, we were talking about this earlier about how do you collect good data and then who is in charge of that? So we were talking about, you know, you, you talk about how you have these more uh, in our globalized world, these more top down with, you know, these big high income countries kind of coming in and like, quote unquote, fixing things, discussing where the line is between that and collecting data in a in a culturally safe, culturally competent way. And then, you know, allowing the actual people who will benefit from having that data access to the data, not just saying like, oh, you know, you'll get the reports when everyone else does and uh, be engaged in like more more partnership and more um, grassroots building of, of organizations to do their own own data collection, although then you get into questions about can they, you know, safely and securely store their data, but that's a whole, yeah, all that stuff. That makes me think of, I know Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. has this really wonderful dashboard, and I wonder if you would be willing or able or interested in maybe chatting about some of the difficulties of collecting standardizing and organizing some of these larger databases when we're thinking about the global scale i know it's kind of a big question to yeah. ask no i mean totally um it, it's really um well first of all you you have to be able to collect the data so how are you doing that with with covid it's it's uh you know the gold standard has been the, these pcr tests um but with something that has such uh asymptomatic properties as COVID, like you can, yeah. you know, people can really feel totally fine or even just, you know, really not so sick um, that you could very, very easily attribute to like literally just like fatigue from work. Yeah. Uh, and so the rollout of these rapid tests have been really great, but then that introduces a whole thing with, you know, user error and all these other difficulties. And then, you know, you think about who do you then talk to once you've tested positive for COVID. I was, uh, I, I, te I, I got COVID when I was in Uganda. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, and I, I had, I brought all these COVID tests with me to, you know, just because I, I, I figured it would be more difficult to get them there. And, um, yeah, when I tested positive, I just, I told everyone I like knew in the country, but I never told any like regulatory body, any government, you know, official body for any sort of data collection or, or things like that. So I think that's really difficult to do. And then, you know, who are you, are you testing is the other question. Who's the denominator in this, um, in this data, which uh, is, is an issue we see in the US. You see these, these big changes in trends and then everyone in the scientific community is like, wait, 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 look at who's being tested, mm -hmm. look at testing rates. 
And that's become a big thing that's being, um, that, that type of information is also being disseminated because it matters if you're, if you're getting, you know, 10% of the country has this disease. Well, who are you testing? You're testing the entire country. Or you're testing just the people who come in with like super sick. Um, so yeah. And then, and then, yeah. And then you get to all these issues with compiling the data and putting it on the dashboard after you, you know, at some point you just have to trust that the data you're getting is like, all right, you know, maybe it's double counted. Maybe we're, you know, double counting deaths. Maybe cases aren't coming through, but some data is better than no data as long as you recognize those limitations, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think it's interesting as well what we ask, what kind of data we ask, because different people want to know different things. Yeah. So, for example, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, transgender stuff, uh, <laughs> act, uh, activism, I guess. And I was looking through uh, Indian vaccination rates on COVID, and they had, for example, a census from 2011 of how many trans people are in the country. And then, you know, exactly, like some data is better than no data, and then they work from there. But you have to deal with uh, both the disparities between internationally reported mm -hmm. and local data, but also, I mean, USAID goes in and they say, please count how many trans people are getting COVID. And India's like, understandably, given the enormity of the population, how many people are closeted, you know, not going to do that. Yeah. And so how do you um, ensure that the data being collected are as productive as possible mm -hmm. without imposing your own research agenda? Oh, yeah. The other side of that is the politicization mm -hmm. of, A, the government bodies or the local organizations or public health departments the oversight or the willingness to, <laughs> to send people out into the community to collect data, but then also the the willingness of like testing mandates yeah. are so politically charged and so politically polarized. Like yeah. who you have ac access to, what you can ask them, and the type of data that you can collect, it's so disparate depending on where you are, even in the United States, you know? Like I come from the South and colloquially talking with friends, neighbors, COVID rates are incredibly high. I, I, for example, like I, my family lives in Tennessee and I took a trip last spring and it was really unfortunate. I ended up picking up COVID probably in the airport. I spent so much time calling the Nashville Public Health Department, the Nashville Airport, my local adjacent county public health department to, to, to try to get somebody to do contact tracing. Nothing happened. Yeah. Right. So we know, like, I know for a fact that the state of Tennessee is severely underreporting its COVID-19 rates, but we also know that they're pretty disproportionately high in areas that are probably underreporting and have poor data collection. And so like, I know that at least on the US scale, and I wonder how that might play into sort of some of our global health, international politics, not just lack of accessibility issues that you might see in LMIC contexts, mm -hmm. but um, I, I love this question of, you know, uh, how do we compare American data collection to that of other countries? Largely because we walk around saying, you know, we know how to do this. High income countries, we've got the data, we've got the technology. And a lot of the time we completely miss because, yeah, it comes down to the culture of reporting. And depending on the disease, that can be one of the greatest barriers uh, to treatment. I know, for example, in tuberculosis, one third of global cases are, quote, missing. And that is... Uh, at least in significant part due to the stigma of being labeled a TB patient. 
And so I wonder whether in a place like Nashville, there's like a kind of pride to, you know, having COVID, fighting through it. I don't need to be tested because tuberculosis you also recover from. Mm -hmm. So think about what uh, a lack of reporting as a culture can do for data surveillance. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, that's very interesting actually to think about that, and and it 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 makes me think that like the you know in these communities some of the best ways then to kind of do disease surveillance is like guerrilla operations. Yeah. Like I think Absolutely. of like wastewater testing. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you don't need to know. You know, there's no identifying data. All you do is you just you just test the wastewater and you see you know how prevalent. X, Y, and Z is in there, and it's like, you know, I, it makes me think of like covert, um, like testing. You know, you just say disease surveillance, and just the word surveillance in this country, it is, and it and it immediately triggers this whole like, oh, my privacy, my my rights. It's like we're talking about like disease surveillance. We're not like collecting, you know, your social security number. We're like seeing if you have COVID. Yeah. And I like we can make sure other people don't get COVID. Yeah in the united states context but then also in the global context there needs to be more research on culturally appropriate disease data collection tracking you know all of these different metrics because even the nature of the the question that you ask like the particular phrasing that you use can elicit very different responses and i wonder what sort of a difference that could make on the community level. I'm a big fan of the language we use just as a history and literature uh, major. Um, I think one of the most under-discussed issues with COVID, uh, you know, popular discourse is the use of military language. Mm. Frontline workers combat battle, right? Um, Doctors aren't signing up to die. I don't think it's fair to decide that the healthcare industry is now filled with soldiers who are willing to die to fight COVID, they're just going into their day jobs. I mean, I, I'm not a frontline worker by writing memos. Uh, yeah. So who we apply that kind of language to uh, will in turn reflect responsibility because mm-hmm. of the frontline workers, you know, who's running the frontline workers and uh, who can be blamed. Um, and I think another issue with COVID that we've seen since with MPOX is the way that we talk about the way that we name the disease oh yeah and the name the different uh variants for example right there was like an indian variant and then the who was like everyone stop talking uh, it's delta uh, <laughs> yeah South first, yeah, yeah south africa yeah i remember it was crazy there was this yeah the variant came out in south africa and then what did the u.s do they like closed travel to like exactly. south africa and like seven other countries in the area or something <laughs> that's, the, that's the virus that's all yeah. the country exactly and so it's easy to uh target specific places and then of course um we saw the who wait an entire year to rename monkeypox as mpox mm-hmm. and so we can see how stigma changes as well yeah. i'm not sure whether it's you know uh, covid19 as a disease is going to be uh, changing its name unless we get another corona a novel yeah. coronavirus maybe we'll call it the second one um but i think it has a lot of colloquial a lot of like different vernacular names that are loaded with stigma i think you're making a really really good point there even the origins of this virus at least in the united states before people were feeling the impact here and i want to say like late 2019 early 2020 it was like the chinese flu mm-hmm. or the chinese you know and i think that there's still stigma associated with covid that i i don't know will ever leave like we we even call like think about the spanish flu like yeah zooming out taking a historic like yeah. it, it, 
start in Spain. It started in Kansas. Yeah. But we still call it the Spanish flu today, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I worry as our generation, not just their public health professionals, but people in this, in, in their, you know, young, early, mid, late 20s, who've sort of had young adulthood during COVID times, yeah. you know, I worry about kind of the internalized stigma that we will carry with us moving forward because it's been culturally accepted as kind of like this loaded disease, yeah. right? Or this loaded illness. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking even about, um, like now I don't, when I'm walking out, you know, I'm, I've got like five vaccinations or something you know when I, when I go, like, seriously like when i go walking out you know I, I feel pretty comfortable you know not wearing a mask i'm you know i'm 24 i'm very young i'm i'm, I'm i'd say i'm more fit than the average american um and i you know i remember you know a year two years ago where you know i would like double mask and you see anyone not masked and you like you give them a look and you're like you're like staring at them and you're like all right i'm i need to shop in this aisle too but i'm making sure they know i'm not going in this aisle because of them you know type stuff yeah. and and now i it it's it's really interesting i i find myself doing a little bit of the opposite and i look at people wearing masks like outside and i'm like what are you doing like it's like we're outside <laughs> yeah, you're not and nice. and it's so yeah, I I totally get that there is there will be this this stigma on it uh, around the disease, but I I wonder how it will change in in ways that it has has slightly you know changed for me. Yeah, yeah, it makes me think about you know the the medium term future of COVID is expected to kind of fold into flu, right? It's yeah. seasonal. Yeah. You kind of don't know what to expect. And you have a vaccine. Yes. Yeah, endemic exactly. And so I I don't imagine a lot of, you know, stigma around flu. It's kind of something you run into and maybe you're a little lazy, you should have gotten the vaccine. Mm. So I'm not sure whether COVID as an endemic disease is going to carry quite the same stigma. And, and kept going back to your point about um, uh, stigma about things other than the name of the disease, I'm wondering, or sorry, about the symptoms. The long-term symptoms we cannot predict right now. Mm. But I imagine that, like, everyone in 20 years at the same time is going to have, you know, their kidneys fail. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And so I wonder whether, you know, the long-term stigma, or sorry, the long-term side effects, because mm -hmm. they will be shared, will uh, eat away at that stigma. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, that's a really interesting thought. Okay, so zooming back out to sort of like this global health perspective, we know that a lot of low middle-income countries are dealing with sort of a double burden of disease right now with nutritional transitions and whatnot. I wonder what long COVID or potentially future implications of COVID mm -hmm. might add to that burden of disease from an economic perspective, from a cultural perspective, like a health systems perspective. Yeah. The golden, the golden entry point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, just uh, one final note on these long-term diseases and thinking about the double burden. For those who may not know, you know, the epidemiological transition is considered, um, you know, the moment when a country moves from its greatest health burden being caused by uh, maternal mortality, malnutrition, child mortality, and then into longer term, more expensive, critically, uh, non-communicable diseases like cancer, diabetes. I fear that COVID will cause long-term chronic diseases in low-income countries. Yeah. And just like we look at low-income countries now and see their epidemiological transition, and we think, oh, they're fine. 
they're not starving to death anymore. Yeah. And then they hit, you know, and then as they graduate from a low-income country to a middle-income country, the funding completely changes. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I'm thinking if the entire African continent <laughs> has their kidneys fail, along yeah. with the global north, yeah. and now it's not just a 10-cent vaccine, it's a 300,000, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's dialysis. Yeah, it's, right. Yes, you know. And if we don't care about them now, why on earth would we invest in global health security yeah. uh, in a way that we refuse to now? Not to mention, I mean, we saw how difficult it, it was and continues to be to get vaccines out to yeah say the african continent yep. uh and, and not to mention more internal issues um corruption you know i, I talked to a, a lot of folks in uganda who who had gotten COVID or, or knew people who had COVID, and they said that uh you know they had been told they were you know the, the government had been fairly transparent about you know like oxygen tanks and ventilators and stuff they said they had you know pretty much no access to it unless you know they you know forked off some money under the table. And um, so, you know, just thinking of how difficult it's been to get, you know, testing and vaccines, now we're thinking about, yeah, we have to get like, you know, big machines, you yeah. know, it's like mm -hmm. that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's not easy. No, and I, I think like thinking about climate change, right? Thinking mm -hmm. about you know, the supply chain disruptions that we saw during COVID and then looking forward in the future at the implications of extreme weather events, even oh, food know. systems disruptions. Yeah. You know, there it's good that we're jumping around in this conversation because <laughs> there's no like linear path to follow when considering like the global health and the future implications of COVID because it's so all encompassing. Totally. Thank you so much for tuning in today and don't forget to turn on your notifications so that you're in the know when part two of this mini series on young professionals in public health goes live. As always, stay safe and be well. All the best, Kat.